What does Jane Austen have to do with a Drake mixtape? For this episode, I was joined by Vermont rock star librarian Meg Allison in discussing Evie's a Boy's Pride, a Pride and Prejudice remix. We talk about gentrification, agency, and the amazing power of spoken word poetry. We give a shout out to Disrupt Texts and ask teachers to think critically about the books they teach. Who is represented in their pages, and who isn't? And how did the boys' novel make one of our librarians think more deeply about a hotly contested road project in tiny Brandon, Vermont? Grab your $6 maple lattes, listeners, and find out. Thanks for joining me, Meg. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Well, thank you for inviting me, Jeannie. I love listening to your podcast. I think it adds a lot to the conversation around literacy and being a literate community statewide in Vermont. So thank you. Um, I've been a librarian since 2001 when I found myself as the first children's librarian in, at the Jocelyn Public Library in Waitsville, Vermont, then moved to the Kellogg Hubbard Library in Montpelier, then the Moortown School Library for eight years, and now I'm at U32 Middle, Middle and High School in East Montpelier, Vermont. It's my fourth year there. I've served on the Dorothy Campbell Fisher Book Award Committee. Um, I'm a lifelong bookworm, love to read, and um, I couldn't be happier to be sitting here with you today in Waterbury, Vermont, talking about books and one of my favorite books of the year. Well, we've talked about books a lot mm -hmm. as, as uh, friends and librarians, and um, thank you for your nice words about the podcast. Mm, you're welcome. I'm so excited to have you on. So let's talk about Pride, this book that we both love so much we've read twice. Um, uh, tell me, just introduce us to the main characters in the setting, if you would. I'd be happy to. So Pride by E.B. Zaboy is actually a remix and not so much a retelling of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. And there's a lot that Zaboy pays homage to with Jane Austen's work, but there's a lot of new themes that E.B. Zaboy also raises in Pride. Um, we have five sisters. Um, instead of the Bennett sisters, they're the Benitez sisters living in Bushwick, New York, a borough in Brooklyn, um, but the main character being Zuri Benitez, and she's um, a senior in high school. Her sister Janae, who would be Jane's equivalent in Pride and Prejudice, is back home for the summer from Syracuse, and there's three younger sisters. They live with their parents in a, in a two-bedroom apartment in Bushwick, and across the street, um, there is a mini mansion being built where formerly there had been a boarded up, broken down building. And Zuri's just, they're very curious, the sisters, about who's going to be moving into this mini mansion in their hood. And they take all sorts of guesses. Could it be rappers? Could they be basketball players? And could they be white? As we see that Bushwick, gentrification is a theme we're going to talk about. Um, in the story. And lo and behold, it's Darius Darcy and his brother Ansley, and, and they're black, and it throws the sisters off their game. They move into this mini mansion, and Zaboy has written a beautiful love story that is contemporary and authentic and relevant. Um, and it follows the same theme as Pride and Prejudice. We, we have a happy ending, but not without um, a lot of just grit and resiliency and great storytelling. 
Evie wrote that um, after she wrote her um, National Book Award winning finalist debut novel, American Street, that takes place in Detroit, which deals with a lot of heavy, hard-hitting topics about urban life and drug use and addiction and violence um, and loneliness, that she was looking to write something lighter. And in light of the political climate of today, she needed something, she needed a story that was going to bring light. And it was her editor, I believe, that suggested that perhaps looking at Pride and Prejudice would be a good idea to base a story around. And so that's what I hear. That's that's the story behind Pride, about how it came birthed. I love that she has updated a classic, but she's also updated our thinking about what a rewrite is, right? Like that it's not just a retelling, that it's a remix, and that she makes us think differently, and that's the language of our, of young people, right? We remix songs, um, and so I love that she's thinking that way, because it doesn't, there's a lot of patterns. I'm a big Jane Austen fan, listeners, I hate to admit it, but I have read Pride and Prejudice more than three times, and I loved being able to say, oh, Zori is Elizabeth, and Janae is Jane, and oh, there's Lydia, right? Like, and and um, to see them, I think Kyla is the Lydia character. To see, you know, Colin is the Mr. Collins character, if you will. And um, I loved being able to like identify Darius Darcy as Mr. Darcy and his older brother as um, as James Bow in the book. But uh, there's more to it than that. It's not a simple uh, plug and play. It's a remix, and it resets it, and it explores new ideas in a way that really grabbed me. I thought I was going to be a tough sell for this book, and I fell for it head over heels. Much like in the... Oh, I won't give any spoilers. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but it is, I should say, also way more than a romance, because we know that one of the themes in Pride and Prejudice, most of most, if if you've endured high school English, you've likely read Pride and Prejudice, and um, is uh, Elizabeth Bennet wants to marry for love and not just economics. Zuri Benitez tosses that right on its head. She doesn't just want to marry for love. She wants to pursue her own potential and her own passion and do what she loves. Exactly. Zuri's thinking, she's got her sights set on Howard University as a place where she'd like to go to school. Her sister is the first in the family to go to a four-year college at Syracuse. So we have a young woman whose parents um, did not graduate from college, did not attend. I think her father may have attended a two-year program. But he's a janitor. He works the night shift at the hospital. Um, They married young, and her parents married for love. And that's a bit of a difference between the Bennett, Mr. and Mrs. Bennett, who may have married for love when they were young, but what is such a pleasure in Pride and Prejudice is the sort of just devil-may-care attitude Mr. Bennett has about his wife, who is just so focused on getting her daughters married and in the right social circles and um, for wealth, um, so she can, I think, so she can live vicariously through her daughters, a status that would be bestowed upon her should her daughters have. A good marriage and you know Zuri's mom says why don't you be a player too you know and she said it she she wants her daughters to go out and um, make something of themselves but doesn't shame them if they fall in love at the same time yeah the Benitez parents have high standards for their daughters mm-hmm. though the Benitez girls are not allowed to go and um, sort of 
flirt just anywhere, right? right? Even though mom is all for dating, they have really strict standards for these girls. They do, and but the whole hood knows about the Benita sisters because they're... They are, there's five girls and they know it and they also know how they're being looked at. So from that lens as well, you know, when we look at dating norms or how um, chivalry or customs about romance and dating come into play between Victorian England with Pride and Prejudice and Bushwick, um, New York, 2017 or 2018, it's, it's interesting because Females have more agency, obviously, in today's day and age. Um, they do and they don't, yeah. you know. And Zuri definitely is is aware of that. She's aware. There's moments in the book where she even, with Warren, um, says, well, this isn't really a date, and how about I ask you out? I mean, she's she's definitely has a lot of agency. And um, it's just, she's strong-headed, and sh- but she's also, like, you know, wants love, yeah. wants to be loved. Absolutely. And she she's aware of her reputation. Yes. Just like Elizabeth Bennett was. Yes. I feel like there's a, um, a piece on page 146 and 147 I'd like to share that's specifically about um, Zuri um, having this desire to be somebody in the world. Um, oh, and it's a poem. Um, uh, I wish I could read it as well as Elizabeth Acevedo, who reads the audiobook. Um, she's visiting Howard for the first time, and the poem is called Dear Mr. Oliver Otis Howard. I wonder if when we name places after important people, we've made them immortal in some way. That their ghosts can linger in corners and halls and dusty dorm rooms to see me writing this letter to some dead white man who probably could never have imagined that I'd exist. Have you heard of the Dominican Republic, Mr. Howard? Or maybe you've heard about a slave revolt that happened in a country called Haiti. These are the places that made the people that made me. Those are the places that, in 1867, girls like me would not dream of being in somewhere like your university. And this is why I want to come to your school, Mr. Howard. There is more to learn about my old, old self. And black and brown girls like me from hoods all over this country want to take over the world. But there's something missing in our history books the public schools give us. At least that's what my pappy says. So he makes me read a lot. And that's where I found out about the Mecca in this book called Between the World and Me. And I'm thinking that I need to come here so I can gather these wisdoms found in old dusty books written by wrinkled brown hands and gather them within the folds of my wide skirt, tuck them into the pockets of my jeans and take them with me back home to sprinkle all over Bushwick like rain showers, Mr. Howard. Sincerely, ZZ. What I love about Zuri is she has this agency over her own life, and she also has the strong desire to go and become something so she can improve her home, which is Bushwick. Mm-hmm. And through that passage, um, E.B. Zaboy is also standing on the shoulders of giants and giving homage to Ta-Nehisi Coates, to Howard University, to Langston Hughes, where E.B. Zaboy finds herself reading poetry when she goes to visit Washington, D.C. and Howard University, her first time away from home by herself. Um, she, she 
she has a vision. She has a purpose. This book really starts uh, with Zuri focused on gentrification and the changing nature of her hood, her neighborhood, um, when the Darcy boys and their family move in across the street. But this theme continues throughout. She has this real concern about how Bushwick is changing. Do you want to talk more about that? I'd love to. I mean, she's changed, She's seeing it change right before her very eyes. Um, and what she's noticing is the changes are often wrought because white people are moving in. And it's a very explicit um, use of race in this book that's very effective by Zaboy that throws her off her game a little bit, Zuri off her game, because she assumes right from the get-go that um, the new people moving in across the street must surely be white, that black people aren't gentrifying. You know, so I'd like to read this passage that starts on page 63 about the Maria Hernandez Park. When we reach the park, Janae hands me a blanket from her bag. Then she and Ansley go off on their own, leaving me to babysit Darius because he looks like a fish out of water. Or maybe I'm the fish out of water because no one told me that we were going to go to some sort of art and music festival festival for white people. I look around to see that almost everyone is sitting on blankets, something we never did when I used to come here years ago. Nobody was having picnics in this park back in the day. We sat on benches and kept our eyes wide open in case anything went down. And something used to always go down. Still, I'm tired of standing, so I spread the blanket out on the dry grass, confident that with all these white people here now, they've cleaned up the rat poop and broken glass. And so it, it speaks to the, the, the gray area, the complexity of gentrification, because it's not all bad, it's not all good. And she's seeing changes happening, she's seeing things get cleaned up. Um, but there's a bit of a sadness there, because it wasn't ever cleaned up for her. It wasn't ever cleaned up for the people who were living there. It seems to be that she recognizes that it's changing and being cleaned up for the people who are moving in. So there is that theme of who's inside and who's outside. And one thing I found so compelling reading this book, and it speaks to my own biases, is that I didn't know there was a difference between a ghetto and a hood. Mm-hmm. And what Zuri speaks about, she speaks about Bushwick as her hood, her neighborhood with a place of love. And it's the people from the outside who judge it and call it a ghetto. Yeah, I really feel that, because it's not like she doesn't want her neighborhood to be safe mm-hmm. or clean. I think what she's really concerned about is belonging. Um, She feels a great sense of belonging. Her neighborhood, there's a big scene in the book where they throw a block party and her mother cooks all this Haitian and Dominican food and there's music and drumming and dancing and um, it's this huge, it's like her favorite day of the year. It's uh, very influenced by the people who've lived in this neighborhood for a long time, and it's a time where she feels like she really belongs. She belongs when she walks down the street to the bodega. She knows what to expect. She looks out and sees the men talking politics or the young men talking smack, right? And um, what her concern is, is as these people come in, not only do they make the neighborhood maybe safer or cleaner, but they also increase the likelihood that she'll no longer belong. And that scene in particular, it's very stark because Darius comes over and he is the fish out of water. He's so awkward and stiff and Zuri tries to get him to dance. And it's, it's, a very, it's a really telling scene because he's there at the block party. He's been invited over, but he doesn't have the Bushwick sh- 
swag that Zuri is just keyed in on. He doesn't know how to talk like he's from the streets. He doesn't know how to dap, you know, with the boys from the hood. And she's really aware of that. It's almost as if um, she doesn't know what to do with him. She almost wants to coach him so that he can survive the hood, even as she wants also wants an out. Exactly. Oh, of course. And then there's the it connects right back to Pride and Prejudice because there is a a dislike between those two characters that's pretty fierce, based on their prides of who they are as well as the prejudices that they have of each other. And what's interesting is that Darius and his family, the Darcys, are moving into Bushwick, into this big mini mansion, but they're leaving Manhattan. And there's a real telling scene where Zuri asks him, why are you moving? You were living on the Upper East Side. And he says, well, you know, when we were one of the only black families in our apartment building, and we were really cute, the neighbors thought we were really cute when we were younger, but as we got older, and grew into these tall, strapping, teenage black boys that the neighbors in their apartment building were afraid of them. So Boy writes that scene so beautifully. I'm just going to share some of it. I close my eyes for a moment and inhale. Do you see that rent is going up all over the place and people are not getting paid more? Schools are shitty because teachers think we're a lost cause. I'm trying to get into college, but I need financial aid and scholarships because I have three more sisters who want to go to college too and my parents have always been broke. That's why I had a wall up with you. You were moving into my hood from what seemed like a whole different world. We're both quiet for a long minute before he says, I understand, but it's not like I have it easy either. Darius, if my family had your kind of money and this kind of house, my whole life would be different. After what feels like forever, he says, I never told you this, but we left our old apartment on the Upper East Side because the neighbors had concerns about me and Ainsley. We had lived there since we were toddlers. Everybody thought we were cute when we were in third grade. But once we got taller and got some bass in our voice, they decided that they didn't recognize us anymore. So we decided to move. But I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I don't belong in Bushwick either. I don't fit in anywhere. So much of this book, I guess, and so much of Pride and Prejudice too, is about belonging. That theme of where do you belong? Where do you fit in? It's, that was powerful. And what E.B. Zaboy does so well is really paint this picture of, picture of Bushwick and how Zuri Benitez belongs there. I mean, Bushwick is 80% Puerto Rican, Dominican. Uh, E.B. Zaboy herself is Haitian. So we have in our character of Zuri, this Afro-Latina young woman who fully embraces her culture and Zaboy weaves in all these cultural context clues for us as readers to discover or to recognize, depending on our perspective of reading the book. For me personally, it was a discovery. I'm not from Bushwick, I've never been there. I'm not a part of that culture. So for me as a reader, it was this this window into another world um, of bodegas and bodega cats and daps and block parties and the L train and, this, and all the food that she talks about and the spirituality of an Afro-Latina culture um, through the, the lens of Madrina. So we have this priestess in the mix who lives in the basement. And you were saying that that might be a connection with Pride and Prejudice, the character, who I couldn't place, who I Madrina was, might be. 
Yeah, Madrina is like this wise woman that um, Zuri seeks out. And in many ways, um, Elizabeth Bennet seeks out the counsel of her aunt, mm-hmm. right? And Madrina is like an aunt. She's a family member. She's not actually related to them. She's their landlord, but she's been in her life, her whole life. Um, but I want you to talk more about um, sort of the Afro-Caribbean, Haitian um, spirituality that shows up in this book because it also shows up in Zaboy's other book, American mm-hmm. Street, in a big way. And I, I found that to be really interesting. So talk more about yeah, that. Yeah, it was fascinating to me to discover this as a reader on my second reading of Pride. The first time I read it as a teacher librarian and I picked it up and I was a fan of E.B. Zaboy's first work, American Street. And um, I actually was a little hesitant to read it because I'm not a huge Pride and Prejudice fan. I'm not a huge Jane Austen fan. I've read it, but I didn't go head over heels in love with it. And so I picked this up and read it and loved it as a novel standing on its own. And I'm delighted to know that it's on the Green Mountain Book Award list. It was just named. A um, little plug for them right now. But on a second reading, so taking this book and then now teaching it, co-teaching it with Jen Ingersoll, with juniors and seniors, it was then that I became a curious reader. I approached this book with a more inquiry-based lens, and so when I read about the Madrina character and all the the spirituality from the Afro-Latina culture, I was curious. I didn't know what I was reading. I had to use Google and look up these things. And um, Madrina lives in the basement, and she has ceremonies, um, and everybody comes, and there's drums playing, and everyone's wearing white and headdresses, and they dance. Um, for an ocean, for the Oshan, who's a deity, a deity of the of the river. So Oshan is an Orisha, and Orisha is a spirit, and Oshan is the goddess or the deity of love, and she's embodied through water, through the river. And so when I think about that, rivers are constantly changing and moving and changing form. And Zuri is the daughter of Orisha. She's the daughter of the goddess of love. So it's just, it was so eye-opening to read that passage and then reconnect this thread that goes throughout the whole novel, this actually, this river that goes throughout the whole novel that connects these themes of love, of why Zuri is jealous, love can be jealous, it can be envious. All these characteristics come through in Zuri. So the idea that Zuri um, is a manifestation of the spirit Oshan, who's an Orisha of water, a goddess of water, really plays through with this quote that I just absolutely adore that Ibi Zaboy writes. If oceans are the wombs of the world, then I am the interconnecting umbilical cord with deep love flowing. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. So in Pride, um, what we have is Zuri sharing her spoken word poetry which gives the readers um, a window into her inner thoughts and feelings in a way that's just remarkable. As a literary device, it's a remarkable achievement. I mean, I also find that in those poems, Zuri writes about the grittier realities of life. She writes with gentrification, when she talks about gentrification, she talks about the junkies on the street. She talks about the lens that for me at least, I didn't see so much in, throughout the narrative, but in her poems, reading them multiple times, um, you feel the, the pain and the pride. 
you feel the tug and pull that Zuri is between this this moment for herself of of, of big changes, and that's another theme. This it's a, it's a beautiful coming of age story. We talked about what it means to be an insider or an outsider, what it means to leave home. Can you ever come back? Will it be the same? For me, you're just illuminating all of the ideas for how you might use this with students, Mm -hmm. right? Because as a social studies connector, um, it does illuminate the uh, African diaspora um, and the many places uh, that people of color come from and the many ways in which they travel to where they are now. And so for Zuri, it's... um, her mother is Haitian-American and her father is Dominican, but she was born and raised in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Um, and so I think that connects powerfully to some of the things we teach in social studies. On the other hand, this spoken word piece made me want to use it as a book to inspire poetry. So we want to be very careful that we're not misappropriating an art form, um, but that spoken word is just following in a tradition of of performing your poetry, of knowing that you have an audience, um, that it lives off the written, off the page. And our students that are participating in this class are a little nervous about that. It's not part of their culture to have spoken word, as it is for Evie Zaboy. Evie Zaboy is a spoken word poet. Um, Elizabeth Acevedo. Elizabeth Acevedo is a spoken word poet who does the, the, narr- the audio recording. So it's a part of Afro-Latina culture to have spoken word as a part of your, of your life and your form of expression, but not so much up here in Vermont. Yeah, I love the power of that you have to speak your poetry out loud. It gives it this authentic audience. Um, years ago, I used to use with students this fabulous documentary called Louder Than a Bomb, which was about spoken word poetry in this contest. Um, But there's a moment where um, Zuri reads her um, poem out loud in uh, uh, Busboys and Poets, Langston Hughes' bookshop, um, or named after Langston Hughes. I wonder if you want to read that, the Girls in the Hood poem. And, And could you start a little bit before she reads her poem to get, I love the emotion that she feels both before when she signs up and then after, after she's performed it. Those few minutes before my name gets called go by like honey dripping from a spoon after each poet goes up, who are all just okay. The man man finally calls my name. My heart doesn't race. My palms are not sweaty. I'm as cool as a snow cone. The clapping is what gets me up from, from off my seat and adds to the rhythm of my slow walk towards the small stage up the short flight of steps behind the microphone, and into the limelight, I begin to speak. Girls in the hood, step onto my block and walk these jagged, broken streets and sidewalk cracks like rickety bridges across our backs to the ends of rainbows reflecting off broken glass where the pot of gold is way on the other side of this world. So we hood girls shout our pain into the megaphone wind, hoping that it will carry our dreams to skyscraping rooftops with radio towers, broadcasting our tongue-clicking, smack-talking, neck-rolling, hip-swaying, finger-snapping sass through telephone wire, jump ropes while we skip to the beat of our own songs and count out the seconds 
minutes, hours, days, until we break past these invisible walls where glass ceilings are so high, we only look up and never scratch the surface with airbrushed and gel-tipped manicured nails, hoping that maybe the stars will reach down instead and want to touch us too. That was gorgeous. It is a gorgeous book. I uh, loved the audio version so much for that very reason. She's the author of another favorite book, The Poet X, and a spoken word poet, so she does those poems so beautifully. Um, I love that Zuri goes through that emotion that I see our students go through, where they have this thing that they're good at, but then they're nervous, they're vulnerable about sharing it. And then she shares it and she has this like, people are so delighted with her work and applaud and she has that moment of pride. Um, and it made me think about um, how do we give our students opportunities to um, cultivate their specific talents and then share them with an audience and go through that cycle of like, oh no, that's so scary. Oh, look, I did it. Oh, people loved it. Right? And, and that's such a fruitful cycle for growth. And I think what's important to note is that Zuri left home. She didn't do this in, Bush, in Bushwick. Her poems are written down in her journal, but she had to take this journey, metaphorically and literally, to step outside of her comfort zone. And perhaps metaphorically and literally, our students need to step outside of their comfort zones, step outside places that are familiar and comfortable. Um, to a place where they're standing on an edge of something and they don't know what's gonna happen if they give it their best shot. Mm -hmm. And in this case, Zuri gave it her best shot. She knocked it out of the park and lo and behold, Darius was there. <laughs> of course he was, of course he was. And of course she was ticked off about it at first too, <laughs> wasn't she? But we will not give away any endings. Um, let's talk a little bit more about what you've termed standing on the shoulders of giants. Well, it's this idea that I have that Zuri herself wanting to go to Mecca made me think she wants to go to the Mecca because it's Howard University and so many people that she's admired have gone there as well. Just as if E.B. Zaboy weaves in these references to people that have influenced her like Langston Hughes, like Ta-Nehisi Coates, by by paying respects and I think that's a part of remix culture. We have a song by Drake that references Lauren Hill and plays a loop of her song speaking of that that's giving her so much respect by looping in a verse from her song um, to bring it to another audience to a new age and I think that a remix does that very well by just sprinkling in these nods of respect to the people who've come before us, to the poets, to the writers that have influenced us. And Evie does in a way that's very um, natural, but they, they really struck out, stuck out at me. And I made note of some of them, but I'm not going to tell you what they are because they're such a treasure trove to discover as a reader as you're going through the book and just make note of all those nods that she gives. They're like Easter eggs, right? I remember uh, her father 
Um, Zuri's father uh, at one point sits down to a, a, a book he's read many times, and it's Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States. And that made me chuckle. It was fun to, it's fun to find these remix elements, as you call them. It's so much fun. And if you're teaching this to students, it's fun to find them as a reader sitting by yourself and going through the book. But for a teachable moment, using this text in the classroom, now suddenly you've curated all these um, cultural touch points to unpack with your students um, and we not assuming that they know who these people are and so then you're just going down another rabbit hole after another rabbit hole building knowledge together um, through those those little Easter eggs that Evie weaves in for us or leaves for us it's a delight it's absolutely a delight yeah wonderful um, it also felt to me like an entry point for empathy um, this book, for me, is an empathetic moment where I get to see what it's like to be a young woman of color in Brooklyn navigating that world. Um, it, it's an empathy point for me, too, to see as somebody much older than Zuri Benitez how young women are navigating um, relationships and romance in a much different time than when I was a, a young woman. And um, I just think often about adults reading young adult and middle grades literature as an opportunity to sort of step in the shoes of um, a younger character and see what the world looks like now. It's beautiful. And with that, we can, as adult readers coming into YA, we can bring some of our own judgments and prejudices. It makes me think, um, how this book might be unfairly judged by adult readers who aren't quite so familiar with youth culture. Um, for example, there is a reviewer in the Washington Post who, when this book came out last September, gave it a really um, negative review based on the boy's use of slang in African-American vernacular English. And the critic was thinking that it wouldn't have much appeal outside of its young adult audience of ages 13 to 17. Um, and I quite disagree with her, and so did Evie Zaboy in a well-documented rebuttal that she put out on Twitter, and really stood up for her book, and stood up not just for her book, but for her characters. And I thought that was really telling, that as a writer she has such deep empathy for her characters, and these are characters who are marginalized, who are living on the edges, not just of our narratives that we share, um, commonly in our classrooms and in our TV shows and in our film, um, but on the edges of our society oftentimes. And so I felt like that was Evie's opportunity as well. She just stood up for these characters once again. So I had the opportunity to hear Evie's voice speak at the Vermont College of Fine Arts in January where she got her master's in writing for young adults in 2011 and she wrote that when she's approaching a new book anything she writes she asks herself are the children well mm -hmm. it's a Maasai greeting that she has discovered and she approaches her novels that way are the children well and so when we think about approaching this text with empathy are the children well is Zuri well is Darius well so you bring up something for me that I've been thinking a lot about as I've been reading more about um, culturally sustaining pedagogies, mm -hmm. right? And this assumption that the only language, the only academic language, or the only language we can speak in schools or in books is standard American English. 
And, um, and there's a moment in the book, actually, where Zuri and Darius have this discussion that I'm just going to share because I think it's illuminating this idea that, oh, there's too much jargon and there's too much um, vernacular in this book. So they're in the car and um, uh, it's uncomfortable and they're trying to find some music. And, uh, and she says, ain't nobody laughing, Mr. Darcy. So seriously, you don't got no trap music? I asked, trying to figure out the buttons on his dashboard. You mean, do I have any trap music? He says this slowly, enunciating every word. Hold up, are you correcting me? Yes. I don't have any words for him. I just stare at the side of his face, and if he wasn't driving at 65 miles per hour down a highway right now, I'd mush him so hard it would make him rethink his whole life. And I think Zuri's point is well taken here. She is a perfectly intelligent um, human being that because she speaks the way uh, her community speaks does not make her any less intelligent. And she knows how to code switch when she meets the grandmother, um, Darius's grandmother, who is very um, rude and judgmental of Zuri. She's very wealthy. Um, she has um, a lot of class judgments of Zuri and where she's from. She's not happy that they've moved their family to Bushwick. Um, you know, she enunciates. Like, Zuri can pick up on all of that and just flip on the dime how she approaches the world and how she communicates. And that's a real undervalued skill, I believe. It's speaking a second language. Yeah, and, and Zuri calls her out too. Like, just because you can speak a certain way and you have nice clothes doesn't make you a, a kind person. Doesn't mean you're polite or you have good manners. And that, again, reminded me of Jane Austen's original, right? That. Uh, money does not equate um, good behavior or good manners. Mm, that's so true. Yeah. Uh, I'm really glad you pulled out um, that story about the Washington Post and also pulled out this notion of the slang and the vernacular that's present in the book. I think as educators, it's really easy to short sell uh, young people's culture. And their culture, just like ours did before it, folks, does include uh, new language, new terms, new ways of speaking things, just like ours did when we were also young. And in Shakespeare's time, Shakespeare used a lot of slang in his plays, and at the time it was considered quite low-brow and vulgar. And now he's held up as the epitome of high-brow literature. Right, that's a great point. <laughs> I love that. Uh, maybe Austin did too, who knows? Right. <laughs> um, so, last time, you've been using this book with students a lot. Is there anything mm -hmm. else you want to share about how that's going? How are students reacting to the book? Well, I just want to give a shout out to my colleague, Jen Ingersoll, who is taking a risk um, and introducing this book to her World Authors AP level class. Um, the students have been digging into a treasure trove of authors from um, Achebe to Kafka to Chimamanda Ngochi Adichie, and they just finished up Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen in February, and Jen had seen a review I had left about Pride on Goodreads. My first reading, I gave it five stars. You know, my second reading, I'm giving it 10 stars out of five. But she approached me and thought, and she was out of a place of curiosity, could we use this with our students? It would, might make a great way to pair up with Pride and Prejudice. And she's looking to actively disrupt the canon of what is traditionally taught, even in a class that's 
that has a lot of diverse authors anyways that she's introduced to the students. But I also think she's disrupting it by bringing in young adult literature mm. to an upper level English class where young adult literature is usually on the margins of what's considered you know, academically rigorous um, to unpack in a curriculum. So as a librarian, I really appreciate that because we, we sell books all the time. I hand sell books all the time to students who are looking for independent reads, for pleasure reading but not so much for books that are used in the classroom. So there's, I, I see it from a couple different angles. So we are in the middle of teaching this unit and our students are juniors and seniors. And um, there's a wide range of reactions to this book from some students really having a hard time liking Zuri, finding her not very likable, finding her um, pretty abrasive and immature. And um, to some students, finding out that this is their favorite book that they've read in quite some time. But they're all approaching it with a real analytical lens, looking at thematic comparisons between Pride and Prejudice, looking at themes of gentrification so you can weave in history and social studies and sociology, race and gender. Um, and so they're keeping dialectical journals comparing the texts and we're going to go into a spoken word um, unit which pairs very well with this text asking our students to give us a summative assessment that will be a spoken word which is going to push them outside that comfort zone yeah it could also ask them to to do their own remix in a way exactly we might leave that open for interpretation like let them help design the assessment what would they remix because we don't want it to be a traditional paper we don't that that belongs in the pride and prejudice unit you know mm -hmm. we don't want it to be a traditional dialogue um that belongs in it we want something to be new and fresh and but relevant for the students to connect with but they're finding a lot of connections in their place here up in Vermont. I mean, we, we are experiencing change as Vermonters and they can see it with their own eyes. I mean, we may not have bodegas, but we have general stores where sometimes you, you go by and the old guys are sitting out front talking about local politics, just like on the bodegas. We have dairy farms that are dying off every year. There's a loss of culture. There's a loss of some of those cultural touch points in Vermont with new people moving in, with bringing in new ideas and new customs and maple lattes, for example. So there's, it's complex, and they can see it with their own eyes as well. I drive through Brandon all the time, and I am always want to do a study in Brandon on um, on the side of a house uh, as you're heading into Brandon from down south. Um, it says um, "Better for Whom," and it's about the brand the way they're updating um, Brandon, Vermont, and um, they've put in a new road. And I always think I want to know that person's perspective. Wouldn't that be interesting? Because it's sort of like. Mm. Who is Bushwick better for? Who, who is, um, you know, when gentrification happens, when change happens, who are Vermont maple lattes better for? <laughs> right, and who's on the inside and who's on the outside and who's, who can't participate? Who's unable to, to, to get that maple latte? It's usually the folks who have already been here, you know, because they, it's just, it's so complex. Um, when property values go up, who gets to stay and who has to leave? Exactly, and who gets pushed out. Yeah. So you bring up Disrupt Techs, um, and there's a hashtag Disrupt Techs, and um, the mission of Disrupt Techs, which is started by three educators, 
um, is as follows. Disrupt Text is a crowdsourced grassroots effort by teachers, by teachers for teachers to challenge the traditional canon in order to create a more inclusive, representative, and equitable language arts curriculum that our students deserve. It is part of our mission to aid and develop teachers committed to anti-racist, anti-biased teaching, pedagogy, and practices. So I'm going to ask you, why should we be challenging the canon? I think we should be challenging the canon um, because it does give a platform for marginalized voices, stories, and authors. And it's essential that we disrupt the tradition of only hearing from certain people, certain races, certain perspectives. And change is hard. Change is hard for Zuri. Change is hard for our English curriculums and our, and our, and our schools and which stories are our cultural foundations. Um, to Kill a Mockingbird is one, for example, that often comes up and is often taught. Um, but why not use The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas instead, which is a new book that came out that's about agency and finding your voice, that's about the themes of self and society. And yet there's a feeling that if we don't teach To Kill a Mockingbird, that our students are missing out on a language that connects them to a tradition, to a foundation. However, I question and I ask if they can't find any relevancy in the characters or the setting or the time frame, if they can't crawl into Atticus's skin because they can't relate to him, because they don't see him, they don't know who he is, then how can they ever even connect to the themes of the book? So I wonder more and more giving students opportunities to pick and choose books of similar themes, text sets, that they might find more relevant could possibly be a win-win. Um, because any one of us could say, okay, these are the 10 most influential books every high school student needs to read, and we're going to have 10 different book lists created. So getting folks who make these decisions around the table to really sort of unpack um, where they're coming from, their biases, and be open to trying new texts from new authors um, and seeing how our students respond. It, it's, it's, in my opinion, it's a win-win. I couldn't agree more, and I think there's several layers to it. I think um, it's really crucial that every single one of our students see themselves in our curriculum, right? And so um, in Vermont, uh, while we may be a very white state, we still are teaching students of color, and they deserve to see themselves reflected um, in the books we teach, in the topics, and the content that um, uh, we bring to them. Um, it's also really important for white students to step into the skin of somebody different than themselves, right? It's really important for them also to see um, themselves not at the center of a story, to experience a world in which they're being asked to see the world through somebody else completely different eyes. Um, I would say the same thing about um, books and stories that feature uh, members of the LGBTQ community or that it's really important for boys to read stories that center female main characters, right? That we can't always um, read about people just like ourselves. And so both of those things seem really important to me. Seeing yourself in literature, and some of us have the privilege of seeing ourselves in literature a lot, right? And um, also of being able to have empathy for the other people's experiences by stepping into their shoes in literature. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. There's no better vehicle for that than through a book and through a book that's being carefully unpacked and discussed in a classroom setting. Um, just as I, on my first reading, loved this book, but on a second reading, interacting with this text and listening to dialogue that my students are having about this book has given it so, so many more layers than I had sitting alone, reading it to myself. So we have this relationship with our books, you know, that's quite intimate. We take them home, we read them. We sometimes talk about them with other people, but we can return them and read a new one. We don't, they come to life when we have opportunities like this podcast, Jeannie, to talk about them, to talk about them with other people because we build and create that knowledge together. And so a text like this um, that might throw our students off balance provides such rich learning opportunities. I also heard you say, and I, I'm in your camp 100%, that um, it's important that we bring YA into the classroom. And um, when I was a high school, middle and high school librarian, I worked with an AP English teacher, and towards the, about this time of year, we would pull out all of the Green Mountain Book Award books of the year and of the year before, and kids would have choice. I would buy multiple copies, and they would get to choose a Green Mountain Book Award book. And those were some of the, the kids those were some of the most successful experiences they had in that class because they, those were their favorite books of the year, right? And they were no less um, rigorous around the work they did around them. Um, the reading was not necessarily easier. Some of the books were actually quite uh, challenging or long, right? But that um, they felt this, uh, they had this relationship with the book that was different than they had with Hamlet. Or that they had with, um, I'm trying to think of what else they read in that class, oh, the things they carried, for example. And so uh, I'm curious about um, using YA and middle grades books in our middle school and high school classrooms and any, experience, any experiences besides pride you've had with that. I, at U32, um, thanks to our English department, um, Kara Rosenberg, who joined our um, school three years ago and chaired the Green Mountain Book Award Committee, has been instrumental, as well as teachers who are ready to see this change in the department, where they've implemented independent reading time for 15 minutes at the start of every English language learning arts class. So our students are reading anywhere from 30 to 45 minutes a week independently at the start of their classes, and it's been a game changer. Our 10th graders also, just like what you said um, with your GMBA project, had to read a GMBA book over the summer and then be prepared to present a project um, for it for the library, like a marketing project using the book that they read off the GMBA list. Now these books are, are selected with great care and expertise and are celebrated with a lot of joy when they're released in Vermont. And it's wonderful to see them being promoted in the classroom and to have time carved away during the instructional time um, for students to read independently. Um, I think that for some students, that's the only time that they're given or they're allowing themselves even to read independently. Um, these are students I think about our emerging readers or readers who consider themselves non-readers. I mean, to have 15 minutes a day with a book in front of you, perhaps with a teacher or a librarian who is very invested in finding a right fit. Um, There's so many options in YA right now. It's a wonderful time to dig into young adult literature. Unlike when we were younger and teen readers, I can't recall a young adult book that I read. 
I think I stopped reading young adult after middle school, after I got through all the Judy Bloom books, <laughs> and then I moved straight on to, you know, adult fiction or whatever was being taught in the classroom. Yeah. So it is a golden age right now for young adult literature, and you'll see that it's if you haven't yet enjoyed a young adult book, that they are there's so many layers to them. It's there's love and romance, and yes, they're coming of age stories because we're capturing what it feels like to be of an age where you're betwixt two worlds, you're betwixt childhood and adulthood. But that's that means they're no less um, heavy hitting or dealing with issues that we're dealing with just from a lens of a young adult. And they're literary. Very there's literary. There's a lot of literary merit to them, and it makes me think I um. I struggle a lot um, when I encounter teachers or parents that turn reading into a chore. Um, because for me, reading is so joyful. And, um, and that's fed me personally and professionally, right? That reading brings me joy in any way in which we can help our students, our young people, our children, our learners to love reading feels worth the effort. And I couldn't. And books like Pride, by E. B. Zavoy, books by Jason Reynolds, Angie Thomas, um, Renee Watson, where our students can see themselves on the pages, or perhaps have this encounter with someone that they don't know anything about. Someone like this character, but they're curious, and they're interested, and it feels a little edgy. And when they're talking in slang, and they're referencing these, like Beyonce. You know, like they're making it relevant. It's a joy to read something like that for students, I think. So, and we all know we all have students who just are non readers, and um, it's books like Pride who can turn the tide for, for students. Let's name some more of those books. And we also talked about sort of books that maybe could be um, paired the way you've paired this one with Pride and Prejudice. Um, so one of the pairings that I thought about recently was Monster by Walter Dean Myers, which really is um, a great way to talk about the juvenile justice system through literature, and pairing that with Dashka Slater's The 57 Bus, um, which delights me because that's two uh, books that are um, sort of outside of the traditional canon paired together. But let's think about some other books we might bring in or we might pair. Um, I think about like Trevor Noah's Born a Crime, which would pair very nicely, perhaps with like a catcher in the rye, when you think about a young man's um, sense for identity, his first forays into freedom. And Trevor Noah's memoir is about growing up in South Africa, um, in Johannesburg. And he was born to an African mother with a German father, and he couldn't even play outside on the streets because in the mid-1980s, um, the, the Procreation Act, the act that he just came into being because his parents made him, um, was illegal. And it's, it's, a, it's a very reflective memoir of what it, with that intersects race and class and politics that you could pair with something. Um, you know, like Catcher in the Rye, that would students can connect to Trevor Noah. It's a brilliant book, and I have to say, I purchased it on audio. He reads it so that my for my son and I uh, to listen to when my son was in high school, and he loved that mm. book, and I did too. Trevor Noah is super smart about race, and does a great job of um, 
uh, educating us all about the construct that is race. Um, yeah, that's a brilliant book. I think of just books, things like The Handmaid's Tale and looking at the Green Mountain Book Award list that contains authors who um, are diverse, that we're hearing from marginalized voices. I think the key is whenever we're reading a story is to think about whose narrative is being centered. I think of a book like Tommy Orange's um, There, There that came out in the fall that I've shared with some of my faculty in the English department and already they're considering adding it to their American Writers curriculum because it's a new voice, it's a debut novel, um, but again a very old voice. He's an indigenous he's an indigenous Native American writer, but he has made it a very contemporary urban tale. Whereas traditionally I think that we're used to reading indigenous voices from the past, telling stories from the past, but not from a, a new lens, not from present day contemporary perspective. So I think that, that book particularly is very exciting. I loved that book so mm-hmm. much, and I love that it upends this notion of um, sort of this outdated notion of what it means to be Native American because all of his characters are urban and Native American and living mostly in Oakland. Um, that's a gorgeous novel. Um, and it does bring a really fresh voice, especially as we struggle with whether or not to teach Sherman Alexi uh, in this current moment. Um, uh, I also think of Jason Reynolds as one of those voices, especially for our middle-level readers, that um, sort of brings uh, this fresh perspective and high interest. Kids are loving his books. They can't put them down. And they're prose novels. So what that means is there's a lot of spoken word in his novels. So to read them, um, it looks on the onset like an easy read for our young readers. But again, interwoven into his words are is the struggle the struggle of what it means to be young and black and living in a place or places that can be violent, where there's gun violence, where there's drug use. Um, His Long Way Down is absolutely stellar. I've bought multiple copies of that book, um, and it's been, you know, awarded lots of shiny stickers on its cover. Highly recommend. Yeah, that's a great one. And I have heard that many reluctant readers can't put that down and want a book like that. And um, for I know for my son growing up in Vermont, um, often the violence he would hear about on the news or in the media felt so far away. And a book like that allows us to step in and have empathy for people for whom this is their daily life. Um, and yet we can't ignore that that kind of uh, violence also does happen in Vermont. Absolutely. Yeah, what else are you reading? What else are you recommending to your teachers and your students? Okay, so some books that I'm recommending to my middle grade readers, and I'm delighted to see that this was just nominated for the Dorothy Campbell Fisher list, is The Prince and the, Je- and the, Prince and the Dressmaker by Jen Wang. It's a graphic novel, and it's a fairy tale story. And in the story, the prince um, doesn't feel completely like himself until his dressmaker um, starts to design him some dresses. And so it's, he's a very gender-fluid, non-binary prince um, who fully comes into his own. Um, and it's a beautiful story that feels authentic. And I'm delighted that it's going to have a wider audience being on the Dorothy's list. Um, other ones that I'm recommending for my middle readers, of course, I would mention again, Black Enough. It's E.B. Zaboy's anthology of stories about being young and black in America. And she's curated... 
um, many authors, some of whom have gotten their writing chomps at the Vermont College of Fine Arts. There's quite a, an alumni list growing from, from that campus in Montpelier of writers, and that book is very accessible. Um, it's got Jason Reynolds stories, Nick Stone, Renee Watson are writing about what it means to be black, which again is a theme that she explores in Pride, that you are enough. You are enough exactly who you are. Angie Thomas has her new one, On the Come Up, um, which is not a sequel to The Hate You Give, but is a standalone, its own story about um, rapping and a young teenager who is finding her voice. Again, this theme of finding our voices is very hot right now in young adult literature. I'm Ghost, delighted. Ghost Boy seems like a companion to The Hate You Give, especially for middle grades novels. Who's written that? That was Jewel Rhodes. Yes, I, that's on my next to read list. And I haven't read that, but I read her Ninth Ward that came out after Katrina, which wove magical realism with this story of survival from a young girl who was trapped in the attic of her home with her grandmother after the Ninth Ward flooded with Katrina. So highly recommend that book as well. That was a gorgeous book. I loved that one too. Really um, put me in the shoes of somebody who experienced that tragedy in a way I couldn't otherwise have experienced it. Yeah, these are all great titles. I'm super excited about checking some of them out and rethinking some of those that I've already read. Um, Meg and I are gonna add some more books to a book list to put in our transcript for y'all because uh, we hope you have as big of an appetite for books as we do. Anything else you want to say about uh, E.B. Zaboy's wonderful remix of Pride and Prejudice, Pride? I would just let everyone know that it is a treasure trove to be discovered. The more that I encounter this text and read this text and work through it with students, literally every day I'm finding a new thing to appreciate, a new thing to discover. Um, and I don't want to spoil it too much for you, um, but my colleague Jen Ingersoll and I will be creating a syllabus and sharing that out to the world of the resources that we've gathered. We've, we've been watching YouTube videos about dapping and listening to Bushwick poets read at poetry readings and just really discovering and bringing to life this community of Bushwick for our students in East Montpelier, Vermont that um, it's been such a joy to co-create with her. Um, so I just want to give a shout out and a nod to her and for having you know, just the courage to take a risk and to do it with me. It's made coming out of winter and coming into spring a delight. This is usually a very hard time of year because <laughs> um, it's been a very snowy winter, but knowing that I can go to school every day and work with students around this text I literally am waking up every day like with a smile on my face. It's exciting, it's a great text. I just have to say I cannot help myself that it just watching you talk about this, I'm so delighted that you've brought your full learner self to this text and it makes me wonder, do we, do we in part teach the books in the canon because we know them so well that we don't have to think about it? And what joy awaits us when we put aside the book we know so well to take on a new one and to be learners alongside of our students. Ugh. 
Embrace that joy, folks. I know you middle school teachers especially are good at that. You're really great at um, keeping up with Dorothy's List and uh, bringing new books in. And I just want to keep encouraging you to do that because watching Meg light up about the learning she's doing around this book, I can't help but think about what an inspiration she must be for her students. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jeannie. It's been a real joy.